Welcome back to The Duck Stops Here, a podcast from the University of Oregon. I'm Michelle Joyce Fife, and today we're joined by Soledad Hurst. If her voice sounds familiar, it's probably because she spent years on air covering the New York Stock Exchange for Bloomberg Television. I loved the energy of being down at the New York Stock Exchange and having somebody counting down in my ear while I tried to get my words into two, three, well, anywhere from 60 seconds to four minutes. And it becomes almost like a science in your brain. You know, when they say to you 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 10 seconds, you know exactly how many words you need Without even like counting, you just kind of have a sense of what you need to say to end right on time. She's also spent time as an attorney and an investment banker, but these days she's best known for her transformative philanthropic work. As the board member of several charitable nonprofits, she works to help provide opportunities to people who wouldn't otherwise have them. Soledad knows firsthand how hard it can be to beat the odds and carve out opportunity. Growing up in Springfield, her father was self-employed as a mechanic and a truck driver, ultimately owning and operating a trucking business. Soledad says that that's where she got her incredibly strong work ethic, which allowed her to pay her own way not only through the University of Oregon, but also through Yale Law School. In this very special episode, Soledad offers inspiration to all who aspire to create a positive impact and to dream big. Her story is one of perseverance and dedication to making a difference. A very special welcome to Soledad Hurst. I'm super excited to be here. You are just in town for the weekend. You had your high school reunion in Springfield last night. Yep, having it. We met at a sports bar in Springfield last night, and I was actually really pleased and sort of surprised to see how many people attended. And then tonight we're going to go to the Blues Travelers concert, the whole group, or whomever wants to attend of the group. And so you are Springfield born and bred. Not born, but definitely bred. No, I was actually born in uh, Northern California, and then I think... Gosh, I must have been about three and a half, four years old when my family moved to Oregon. But so, yes, I mean, I started my education at Centennial Elementary, then went to Hamlin, and then went to Springfield High. That's amazing. And then you obviously went to the University of Oregon. I did. Uh, What made you decide to go to UO? Well, I actually had applied to University of Washington, got in and was going to go there, and took a year off, lived in California, and finally got myself back up here, and uh, at that point couldn't really afford University of Washington. Applied to the University of Oregon, of course, got in, and the rest was history. I was here for the four years. Awesome. So it was the out-of-state tuition. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That that stopped me from going to University of Washington, yeah. I mean, I I paid for my education completely myself, so I had to find something at that point that was affordable. And it was certainly far more affordable back then than it is today, you know, I think, gosh, what was it, like $500, $700 a semester, a quarter, and, you know, and then fees and stuff, but I still had to do work study while I did it. So you were doing work study and no scholarships at that time? Pell Grants. Pell Grants, okay. Yes, I think when I got into my junior, senior year, I did win some awards that gave a little bit of scholarship money. Okay. 
There's now a program. Do you know about the Pathways program? I don't. Actually, it's a program where all Oregon residents who meet a certain GPA threshold and are eligible for a Pell Grant get a free ride um, to UO. Wish that would have existed yeah, back then. You would have been. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> amazing. A lot. I, I mean, I didn't have a lot of debt so much from Oregon, but I had a lot of debt in general because my law school, of course, I got a lot of debt from that. So it would have been really nice to not have graduated from all that and owe so much money. So I'm glad to hear that that exists. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I never would guess by reading your bio and hearing about all of your success and the amazing things that you've been doing and the philanthropy and everything that um, that you were worried about being able to afford coming to school. I don't think it was ever a question of whether I was going to go to college. It just was a question of how to pay for it. Right. Though our family didn't have any, had very little money. My dad certainly worked hard and taught us to work hard. And all five of us ended up going to college. Not all five of us ended up graduating. Mm -hmm. We all paid for it ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of proud that we all managed to do that. Um, yeah, so it was never that question. It just was you made it work and you had to figure out how to make it work. And I'm really, really happy that there are programs today that help young people because our family, you know, one thing our parents did well was instilled in us a sense of, of a work ethic and the fact that college was something we really needed to aspire to and to achieve, and not all families get that. So I think already having that barrier of familial, you know, of not having a family that pushes that, then having the added burden of having to pay for it will right. just stop people from going. So if you can yeah. get rid of that one burden, it might make it easier for these students to attend. So I'm really glad things like that exist now. Yeah, yeah, uh, so are we. <laughs> um, and so you were doing work study and of course- you know. Gosh, it's been so long now. I don't know if I would have called it work. I don't know if they would have called it work study, but maybe it was. I ran the freshman seminar program, and that was a paid position. Okay. And then I did other things that helped me earn. I had, I mean, I had to earn money. So yeah. <laughs> and did you know coming into school what you wanted to major in right off the bat? No, but I, I decided on psychology. And I took psychology my first semester. This actually was a really interesting revelation for me. I took psychology. I got a C on my first test, freaked out. And a student in the class said to me, well, how did you study for it? And I said, well, I just you know, read and then took the test. And she said, well, you need to reread the material and maybe take notes. And I know this sounds crazy. It changed my life with study. And I started doing that and really realizing, okay, you can't just read through something once and, and, and get a good grade. You have to actually study. And that helped because then it sort of, I found out that I loved psychology. So I think, I don't know if I committed then, but then I did that. And then I did a minor, two minors, one in Italian and one in rhetoric and communication. If I really wanted to study something I loved, it would have been English. But that just seemed like, why study something you love so much? That seems like a waste of going to college to do something like that. At least back then I thought that. And so when you graduated, you took a gap year, is that right? I did. I lived in Norway for a year. I had a, Nor Norway was sending a lot of students to the University of, of Oregon. And I first had a friend, a, a female friend in that group who I still am friends with. And then I met a, a, a young man in that group from Norway who became my boyfriend at a certain point. And then we moved out of, we both graduated the same year and moved to Norway for a year where I, mm worked, studied for the bar, uh, not studied for the bar, studied for the LSAT and um, applied to schools. And then at the end of it, he went off to his 
he went to Syracuse, I think, for a business degree, and then you know we broke up, but we were still we're still good friends actually even today. And um, I went off to law school, so that was my year off. Okay, and so you went to Yale for for law school. Yeah, and then after graduating, uh, you're ready to be a lawyer. What do you was do? I though? No, <laughs> I, I I had never visited a law school. I had never met a lawyer. I just had this idea in my head of what the justice system is or was. Some of that has been fixed in my head. I don't think that necessarily now, but there's a, there's a lot of good in it and there's some frustrating aspects of it. Um, but I had never met a lawyer and I'd never visited any of the schools and I literally took the list. I had borrowed a book from a, a fellow student here who had thought about going to law school. It was a study guide and I just studied it. Literally back, I laugh now when I think when my kids take the ACT and SAT and they have a tutor, and I took this book and I read it cover to cover probably twice, taking the practice exams over and over, and I took the LSAT one time. At the front of that book was a list of the schools. And I thought, you know, I've got the grades, I graduated 4.0, I have the activities, why not apply to all those? And I literally applied, like, schools that sounded interesting, but mostly like in the top 10. Yeah. And my first acceptance was, I was living in Norway, my first acceptance was from Harvard. And my dad called me from Springfield and told me about it. And then the second came from Yale. And I loved the one from Yale because it basically said, your first year, you don't have any grades. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's such a relief. Yeah. Because it was going to be overwhelming enough yeah. anyway. And the one from Harvard was, it's 600 students and you should show up early and try to find a place to live. And that was like unbelievably intimidating because I had yeah. no money and there's no way I was going to show up right. in, and find a place to live. And, and it was, I mean, my first days at Yale, it was unbelievably intimidating. And so it sounds like uh, you were very confident at UO and you were very driven studying for the LSAT. Were you, so did you feel imposter syndrome or did, like, what was the vibe? Yes. Yeah. But then my daughter's going to Yale University and she feels imposter syndrome. Yeah. I think everybody feels of it to course. some extent. Yeah. I, had, I, was, I felt like I was riding a high because it was yeah. so exciting and new. There was no doubt that a lot of these students were better prepared than I was. Mm-hmm. Many of them grow up in environments similar to what my children are growing up in now, where they talk the talk, they have parents who are actively involved in their lives. I didn't have any of that. They, they knew the lingo of, they could mention somebody in DC, mm-hmm. I didn't know who these people were. So I felt like I was always playing catch up. And I really had to learn how to write. Mm-hmm. Now I know at Yale, these students such as the type I was, can get a, you know, before they come in, they'll have programs that will help them write and do all that. I I just felt like I was playing catch up all the time, but that didn't stop me from loving going there. But then you had an Ivy League degree and you're entering the workforce. What was that like? Then, so I'm sure they probably do this today at these schools and maybe even here, but lots of firms and organizations come in and recruit. Yes. So they literally show up on campus and you go from one to one, you know, you put in your name and you go. And I ended up working at a, uh, my first, so my, my first year of law school, I, I did, I thought I wanted to do international work. Mm-hmm. And so I um, studied the transition to Namibia, I mean, transition to democracy in Namibia, and I worked for an NGO in Denmark. Second year, I worked at a law firm in New York, and I really loved New York. So then I applied to law firms in New York for after, and, I, and the reason I chose to go to a law firm was because I had all this debt. Mm-hmm. And I knew I needed 
I didn't want it hanging over me like debt was always on my parents' shoulders. I didn't want it hanging over me forever and ever. So I ended up at a firm called Davis Polk and Wardwell, which was a what they called a white shoe law firm back then. And I remember thinking it was just super great that I even had, I was brave enough to just wear pants once a week. Because back then you would wear skirts and suits and I was a little bit of a trailblazer, I thought, by wearing a pantsuit here and there. Um, But to be perfectly honest, I didn't like it. I wasn't prepared for that kind of life, having grown up in Springfield, Oregon and in um, Blue Collar. My dad was a truck driver, and I just wasn't prepared for working the kind of hours that they worked and just how formal everything was. So I lasted a few years there. I had to borrow money to get there from the firm. And then I lasted a few years and I got recruited to an investment bank called Allen and Company. And I actually very much enjoyed that. Um, But the truth was I still, I wasn't a Wall Street personality. And Mm -hmm. I took a year off. I took a, I thought this isn't really what I want to do with my life, be a lawyer or an investment banker, because it doesn't really fit who I am and I'm not getting much joy out of it. And I'm stressed out all the time. And I um, took a year off to do acting and then went back to work in another um, financial firm. And it was at that time when I was working at this financial firm that an agent that I had when I was acting called me up and said, Hey, I'm not sure if you still are interested in this, but Bloomberg Television is interviewing people to be on air. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this could be kind of interesting. I'll go check it out. So I went, laughed when I left it because they made me read a teleprompter, which is very different than what we're doing right now. Yes. And to make it sound natural, particularly Mm -hmm. if you've never done it before. (laughs) So I went out of there and I was like, there is no way they're going to hire me. And then they hired me. And um, that I loved. I love that. I really it just loved fell it. the perfect thing, just fell yeah. right in your lap. And and honestly, when I have a really good friend who's on television and um, he had gone for one year to Yale Law with me. He was at Columbia and transferred for one year. And his dad was a really, really big wig uh, uh, constitutional lawyer. And he was super connected with a lot of people in New York. So my friend quite quickly out of law school, got on television and was doing quite well. And he said to me, would you be interested in this? I was like, yes, I'd be interested in this. But then he told me how much he was making. Right. Not as much as the law firm. No, and it was, no, and it wasn't, I was like a a quarter of what I was making at the law firm. But he had parents who, you know, were paying for his apartment in New York City and he could afford to do that. And so it wasn't until, you know, 12 years later that I could think to do something like that because it was a pay cut. Yeah. Going from going from investment banking to that. But yeah. I did love it. It was really fun. Yeah. But it seems like it was the right decision. I met my husband. Yeah. I wanted to uh, have children. Yeah. I had them older. I had Jane at uh, 39 and Jared at 41. And my husband was vice chairman of Goldman Sachs. And he was looking at just doing something different. And I think the idea of having a wife who was getting up at, at, at 3.34 a.m. to get on television yeah wasn't so appealing. He never said it in so many words, but it was sort of like, really, do you need to still do this? And um, so I stopped working once I had the children. Yeah. Well, I mean, I couldn't imagine having that schedule and being pregnant and stuff anyway. I mean, that'd be insane. Um, Before we talk about the kids, I wanted to sort of ask a little bit about Bloomberg and any advice you might have for anyone interested in that field. First, I'd say it was, I don't think I've ever loved a job more than I did 
doing what I did there. And there were two, one of the reasons is, um, well, first I found financial news to be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I loved the energy of being down at the New York Stock Exchange and having somebody counting down in my ear while I tried to get my words into two, three, mm -hmm. well, anywhere from 60 seconds to four minutes. And mm -hmm. it becomes almost like a science in your brain. You know, when they say to you 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 10 seconds, you know exactly how many words you need without even like counting. You just kind of have a sense of what you need to say yeah. to end right on um, time. But that sounds stressful. <laughs> it is stressful. And I'd be exhausted after, yeah. I, after the mornings, because mornings is when people watch financial news, so that's generally when I was on. But I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, we worked in, at Bloomberg. It was a bit of a fishbowl approach, so they've changed locations, but I hear it's similar still. And I am friendly with Mike, and he, Mike Bloomberg, and he comes out to Aspen sometimes. Not that we talk about news that so much anymore, but... Would everybody kind of, it was open, so you would all sit and everything was open, and generally, somebody on on the TV would have a producer. Right. Uh, you'd have a producer, you'd have the people in your ears. I tended to produce my own stuff. I kind of felt like, I mean, I knew more than most of the producers knew about business, having been a lawyer and having been an investment banker, so they trusted me, and I would do my own writing and my own research, and you would figure out what move is going to probably move the markets in a given day because mm -hmm. yeah. stock companies were coming out with earnings news or some other kind of news and you know which companies that would affect and yeah. you'd do sort of a little bit of a predictive thing and that's what I would do and you generally so even though my I would I would sort of have a producer assigned to me I would do most of that work myself okay. but being on morning television it was like I said earlier getting up at 4 a.m. Yeah. it would be I could either go into the studio and have make it put on me, mm -hmm. or I learned to do it myself because that would mm -hmm. give me 15, 20 extra minutes right. to sleep <laughs> in. And then they'd have a car for me and I'd jot down there to yeah. the, or if I was anchoring, I would go up to the, you know, the actual studio. But I tended to prefer the live, the live yeah. actions aspect of it. And then you'd go down and then just you know, however many times an hour, get up and do your stuff, research yeah. in between, call people, speak to them, get quotes. Yeah. It was fun. The producers must have loved working with you because you're just they didn't like, have to work I'll that just hard. do that job too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that sounds like a really fun life, but not sustainable for, for no, a it's very it, it's, it's, It is. It's exhausting. Yeah. Because, you know, the brain uses up the most energy in your body and you're using your yep. brain constantly. Yeah. And everybody is watching you. I would get emails from around the world if you make a mistake. I can, I oh. had one moment when I was new to it and I did not know how to pronounce a company's name. Oh no. And of course I get on and I start, I start doing the report for Schlumberger and I'm going on and on about Schlumberger, Schlumberger, Schlumberger. <laughs> I get, one of the anchors says to me in my ear, so that I, what is this company you're talking about? Schlumberger. I'm like, oh. and I give a description. He goes, I get, well, how do they say it now? Schl Schlumberger or something. Anyway, oh. it has a totally different name. <laughs> I thought to myself, okay, you can either own this or yeah. be embarrassed forever. And I thought, okay, that's yeah. uh, so I got back on and I said, so Sorry. I made a mistake on the name and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I moved on. Yeah. But yeah, but you're being watched constantly and people are paying yes. attention to the way you dress. And I had a couple stalkers and oh gosh, yeah. And you just, that part of it, I didn't like as much. Yeah. 
Ah, yeah, I didn't even think of um, stalkers. Yeah, part. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, (laughs) what time did you go to bed at night to get up at three a.m.? I tried to be in bed by nine thirty. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty late. Um, for really not for New York. I mean, (laughs) but for well, New York for getting up at three. I would say, but get more up at like four. Okay. Financial people start watching around five, five thirty in the morning, and I could. I got good at squeezing it in, and okay, you know. I expected you to good. say, like, I had an early dinner and then I was asleep. By well, that was another thing with my husband because he yeah. was, he loved, he's very social. And yeah. the idea of having his partner, like, sorry, I got to go to bed now at yeah. 9 p.m. Everyone else is just getting ready to go yeah. out. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, New Yorkers tend to eat dinner like 7 8 o'clock. Yeah. Okay. And you're still in New York now. Aspen, but okay. we oh, do spend okay. time in New York, yeah. Okay, we you still, have a place in New we have, York, right? We have okay, a place in New York, yeah. Okay. We consider Aspen home now, though. Okay, okay. We're Colorado residents, and we spend the majority of our time in Aspen. Okay, and so you got married and um, had two children, that's yes. right? And um, Jaden has kind of some exciting things yes. happening right she's now she's a singer-songwriter. Well. She's going to do her first real concert in Aspen, uh, August 6th, which we're excited about. Oh my gosh. She's just going to do uh, like maybe a six song set of mm-hmm. um, a bunch of backups. So that's very exciting. Her, her, the, the, not the first singles, which she and I did together down in Nashville, but that got some, a little bit of attention. So now she's being distributed through Sony Orchard um, and with Pulse Music. But she, she, uh, her first song, I, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's almost 100,000 listens. But for an unknown artist, that's amazing. We're all excited about it because it's so hard to launch yeah, yourself in this industry. And the second song is doing really well, and her music video with the first song is over eighty-five thousand. So we're feeling pretty good about it. She is working on the second album, yeah. and well, she's uh, only what seventeen. She's she's eighteen now. Eighteen. And uh, this particular album will be fully dropped in September. They'll do a third single, drop the full album, which is a whole bunch of songs. And she wrote them all herself, which is cool. Okay. We'll put a link in the show notes. And oh, yes, please do. <laughs> please do. We're trying to, trying to get her going on this. It is so hard to make a living in this industry, but yes. she's also a uh, academic and she'll be at, you'll start to Yale university on August 20th. So she has Yale as a backup. That's she has Yale as a backup. <laughs> Just in case the music doesn't take off. Just in case, yeah. <laughs> she can uh, use her brain for something else. Well, that's, uh, that's so cool. And there are so many ways to use music that yeah. isn't just being a touring artist. No, exactly. Uh, yeah. She can run a studio. Yeah. <laughs> she could do... I always say to her, you know what? You can write songs on the side and go run a studio or do something like yeah. that. Or whatever you want. I mean, she could do anything. She can do international work. Or she loves languages. Yeah. It's fun. Okay, so she wants to do international work, and she loves languages as yeah, well. Is yeah. it, where does she get she that just took from? The placement, she just took the placement exam for Arabic, and she called me up yesterday, and she said she took it for Spanish a week ago, and for Arabic, and she calls me. She says that was so hard. I don't even think I made it through the first level. But she'd been independently studying oh, it for two years. Gosh. Arabic yeah. is extremely extremely difficult. difficult. Yeah, you're you're writing yeah. from what is it? Yeah, right to left, completely different alphabet. Yeah. But she finds it's a brain puzzle. She enjoys that. So Spanish and Arabic. And And French. And French. Yeah, she speaks fluent French. And I know that you have traveled a lot internationally. And um, do you Total wanderlust. (laughs) I would actually, I should say this, that during during college, despite not having a lot of money, I would save up every penny. And I would get this book. At that time, it would be Europe on $25 a day. And I'd buy myself a Euro pass. 
And I would go over by myself and I would just travel for a month and just super carefully plan out every single day. And it might be just a, a, a little roll with a tomato and a chunk of cheese. And I, I've always had wanderlust. And I think that also is what helped me be able to go off to law school and do those things and go to Norway and everything because I just wanted to see the world. And you've been involved with some international NGOs. One, I was involved with a, a group called Finca for many, mm -hmm. many years. I was on the board of directors and I chaired the National um, Advisory Committee. It is, I'm very proud of the work that they do. They're one of the original NGOs or nonprofits that targets females in third world countries and provides microloans. And the reason that they target females is they found through trial and error that the women tended to put the money back into the family. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to discredit men on any level, but they just right. found that that was a more right. effective use of, the, of mm -hmm. the dollars that were being... Uh, and it could be a loan of six, $700, and it's, a, it's, a, it's what they call village banking. It still exists in some, some entities. And... By village banking, what it meant is that a couple of the stronger women in the community would find other women in the community who they trusted, and each of them were responsible for each other's loans. So that put some additional pressure. And then these loans, because back then you didn't have mobile phones, it was really a door-to-door, -door and whoever was working for Finca would have to go and collect the money. And But paybacks were 98 99%, and uh, Queen Rania of Jordan was on our, our board, and Natalie Portman was our spokesperson. And at one point, we at, uh, Queen Rania wanted to start a program in the Palestinian refugee camps in, in um, Jordan, and my husband and I sponsored that program. Uh, but we've tra I think that's probably my, where my daughter's interest in, in Arabic comes in, because yeah. they've traveled around the Middle East so much, but, yeah. and have been to like 50, 60 countries. But I just, from a young age, dragged them to second and third world countries to see how people lived and experience those lives, you know. I love that because, I mean, I, I, you probably were not doing a lot of international travel as a child yourself. Then, and yeah. it sounds like... Um, we didn't really have much any vacations. We'd go to the Oregon yeah. coast maybe for a week. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love that you're keeping those values um, yeah. in the family and making sure that they're still very yeah. uh, grounded and... Um, and also, you're very involved with philanthropy. And did you want to um, talk? Yeah, about I mean, that? well, we we do a lot of philanthropy. We are focused a little bit more in Aspen these days, mm -hmm. but but starting to branch out again. When I was yeah. raising the children, and, and when we moved to Aspen, I wanted to keep it local because it just I didn't want to leave the children locally. Uh, I you know I have chaired the the theater Aspen um, this. Aspen Country Day, been involved at the Institute. My husband's involved at the Institute and at mm -hmm. um, the music festival. We donate to a whole bunch of causes. I'm on a board called Summit 54, which does summer programming for youth in the Valley. Mm -hmm. I recent, I was on the board of um, the Children's Hospital in Denver. Mm -hmm. Recently stepped down from that. I am currently on the board of a group called Meridian, Inter Meridian International, based in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and that is a little bit connected with my wanderlust. It does mm -hmm. a lot with the State Department and does a lot of internationally related work with ambassadors and corporations. So I'm super interested in that. I chair their uh, governance and nominating committee. They do uh, they do a lot of really interesting work on, on the, you know trying to promote um, diplomacy, capitalism, yeah, all that sorts of stuff. You know for 
America, but I'm not saying that very articulately, but yeah, so I'm involved with them, which I love. Um, I'm involved with Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recently funded something I'm super proud of, which is, as you've heard about my background mm-hmm. and having difficulty paying for my own education and really being, um, when I, and getting to Yale, I mean, I wasn't so much first generation when I went to school. My mom mm-hmm. had attended college for one or one one year, and then she was attending University of Oregon while I was here also. But in essence, it was almost first generation. Mm-hmm. And um, what we did is fund for the law school anybody who is at a certain, well, basically poverty line or below, but it just got increased to double the poverty line mm-hmm. um, or below uh, full funding. For their, That's incredible. Yeah, something that would have been so nice to have when I was there. And part of the be. rationale being they can make choices after they get out of school that I couldn't make. Mm-hmm. I went to a big law firm, and as I shared with you, I didn't really love that. Mm-hmm. It didn't fit my personality, but I was desperate not to be poor, and I wanted to pay off my debt, and I had to make money. And I love the idea that these students can choose to go back to their communities if that's what they choose to do and do what they want to do and not have to stress about it always. Yes. If they wanted to uh, go work for a nonprofit, whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah, They're able to do so. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredibly impactful. And, um, so when you came back for your high school reunion, I'm wondering, so you are probably, (laughs) Uh, kind of a rock star in your class. You were on national well, nobody television. Nobody wants to say those things, right? <laughs> no, but, it's, it's interesting. I am excited to be back. I still have two of my best friends. They're godparents to my, both of both I grew up with, and they are one's godparent to my daughter Jaden, one's godparent to my son, and still talk to them frequently. Have a couple other friends I talk to, but I haven't been that connected with many of them. It's interesting to the stories they think they know about me and share, uh-huh. which are kind of funny. And I have to set them straight on that. No, I did not marry a, you know, this or that. Right. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, a lot of them stayed local. Yeah, it must be. And I didn't, so. Yeah, I mean, even just starting off, going from sort of a small town to New York and everything, it would have been culture shock. And then uh, probably coming back, it's probably very nostalgic and, and maybe even a little bit of culture shock yeah, as well. It's nostalgic and you're exactly right. I mean, nostalgic and culture shock. I I guess I'm a little surprised how, how few have left mm-hmm. the area. There are some certainly who have moved to California, Washington, mm-hmm. but many of them have stayed in Springfield or, or just moved over to Eugene. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's lovely to talk to them and hear what they're doing. I just, I, I live very differently now. And yeah. I find that really interesting just to, I, I wonder what it might've been like to have stayed here. I'm glad I didn't, but I yeah. appreciate hearing what they're doing and their commitment to the community. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's funny because probably there are people listening to this podcast, maybe potential students or current students, recent graduates who, um, you know, came from humble origins and maybe feel a little bit intimidated and can get some inspiration by hearing your story. And I'm curious if you have any, not to put you on the spot, but just some words of wisdom for uh, young people starting off. I, I guess what I would say 
is take chances. Hmm. Open yourself up to possibility. And even when you think that there's nothing in front of you, mm-hmm. a door opens. And even if you just have an inkling it might be interesting, try to take a step through it and see what's inside. Because mm-hmm. I feel that there were just those times in my life where that happened. And it might not have been that door that got me right. to what I found interesting, compelling, mm-hmm. or even to make money, but it might be the next door or whoever you meet then. And that's been the thing I've tried to do most in my life is just, if I if the paths aren't coming before me, try to find the paths by having conversations. And then mm-hmm. trust yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, do not everyone's born with a ton of confidence, but I do yeah. think you can still try to nurture that in yourself mm-hmm. and force yourself to take those steps mm-hmm. because you just don't know what's what's going to be out there. Yeah, don't uh, so check yourself out of it. Yeah, don't check yourself out of it. Really, just, I, I don't, that, that's always been something that I've tried to do. And it's really interesting to gain perspective by seeing other places in the world. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you. We're glad that you're in this place in the world with us today. And it was um, so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you asking me. Go Ducks. (laughs) Go Ducks. Exactly. (laughs) 